0: We're looking at a couple of different passages in Hosea. And before we do that, I'll just remind you what the last two weeks have been. Most of y'all are here. The first week we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and saw that we are relational beings. That really, what we are more than anything else is social beings. Both in the context of friendships, in the context of a relationship between us and God. We're His image bearers, we're His children, He is our God. He is who we are made in the image of. We're to be bound to him in a relationship. But also we we're made for marriage, that in a very special and unique way, he created us, male and female, in his image. And so we relate we were made for marriage. And then last week what we looked at is if that's true, how come all these relationships are frustrating? How come everything how come life is difficult? How come we hurt one another? How come we don't understand God? We don't feel God? How come life is full of frustration? And pain and relationships are hard. And we saw that at the heart of that issue was the fact that we set ourselves at the center of our own universe. And so we kind of dealt with that and dealt with it as effects in our relationships. And this week, we're going to uh, examine the rest of Scripture. That's the first three chapters, was our creation, the fact that we were made for relationships, and then the fall. The rest of Scripture is God's plan in which He's going to restore all of that. And so tonight, we're going to begin to look at how it is that God goes about restoring relationships. And in some ways, tonight, I've said this a lot, lays the foundation for the rest of the semester. As we talk about dating and marriage and sexuality, understanding the nature by which God restores His people actually provides the foundation and the model by which we enter into relationships. So as we look at Hosea, that's what's going to be underneath it all. So let's turn first to Hosea 1. We're gonna, I'm going to read a couple of selections from a couple of different places. And we're going to jump around a little bit because really kind of what I'm doing is preaching the whole book of Hosea tonight. It's kind of one story uh, that goes together. I'd encourage you to read the whole book. It is um, it's amazing. It's stuff you didn't know was in the Bible. Uh, but anyways, beginning with Hosea 1... Um, Verses. I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bere, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom." For the land, create, the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And can jump ahead to chapter 3, the first five verses. And the Lord said to me, to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver, and a homer, and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore, or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king. And they shall come and fear the Lord, and to his goodness in the latter days. Lastly, is Hosea 11, verses 1 through 11, 1 through 10. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. I led them with the cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. But how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And they shall go after the Lord, and He will roar like a lion. And when He roars, His children shall shall come trembling from the west." There shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this is the Word of God. It's been around for a long time, and it'll be around for a long time after we all go. It stands forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank You for this passage of Scripture. It confounds us. It uses words that offend us, that don't seem like they're in the appropriate place, dear Lord. How can these words show up in your word to us? I pray now, dear God, we can't understand why they're here unless you convince us of why they're here. So be with us now, Holy Spirit. We cannot change apart from you. Come with your word now. your name we pray. Amen. I don't know um, how dated this is for y'all, but in 1984, a movie was released called The Karate Kid? <laughs> yes? Okay. I don't know. I mean, like, some things from the 90s, y'all never, if y'all haven't heard of Gossip Girl, that's like today. <laughs> um, the Karate Kid. We have Affirmation Karate Kid? Okay, okay, thanks. In Karate Kid, um, there, the general story is there's this kid who's getting bullied and he's gonna learn karate to beat up the bullies, right? And um, his name's Daniel LaRusso. And in the story, he encounters this old um, Asian man, Mr. Miyagi, and you know, ask him to be his karate trainer. You're all thinking, like, what does this have to do anything? Huh? Yeah. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. Um, but in that story, Mr. Miyagi has some very unconventional training methods, as Christian steals my illustration before I can get to it. Um, just kidding. <laughs> um, and one of the things he does is Mr. Miyagi has all these antique cars in his yard, and he gets Daniel Russo to go out there and he teaches them this waxing method on the cars. You all, this wax on, wax off, yes? Maybe you haven't seen the movie, but you've heard that. And in that story, what he does, he says, You wax on like this, left handed, I think, and you wax off right handed. And he makes him wash all the cars using that method, and Daniel's confounded and like, you're using me just to take care of all your chores around the house. And what happens as the story unfolds is as he begins to train him in karate, he finds out that this thing that he was teaching him washing the cars was actually karate, and that he was learning defensive moves. And so while he was washing cars, he's was actually becoming very adept at defensive moves in karate. And the reason I bring that up, as silly as it sounds, <laughs> it really sounds silly, um, is because that, the fact that washing cars and karate kind of ended up being the same thing is kind of what's going on in Scripture. That God is beginning to, to teach us about marriage by teaching us about the way He loves us. And in fact, you can't really talk about marriage without talking about the Gospel. And you kind of can't even talk about the Gospel without talking about a lot of the principles to, that drive marriage. And so as we address marriage this semester, the first thing we have to understand is the fact that really the principles that will sit at the foundation of a healthy marriage will be the principles that sit at the foundation of God's love for you. And so, in fact, when you read Paul's letters and he talks about marriage, especially like in Ephesians 5, he talks about marriage and he talks about the gospel and he goes back and forth between those things so kind of ambiguously that you kind of get the idea that he's really just talking about both the whole time. That when Paul's talking about marriage, he's saying, yeah, I'm talking about your individual marriage with your individual spouse, but at the very same time, he actually very much intends to be talking about the gospel. And when he's talking about the gospel, he very much at the same time is talking about the principles in your marriage. And so as we encounter Hosea, we begin to look at the way in which God marries his people. And what we find out is that God's answer to the relational rupture that we've caused by our rebellion is marriage. And in this text, we see shocking things, baffling things, confusing things, almost disgusting things, but in some ways, it's all beautiful. And in of ways, it's all beautiful. And so what we have to do tonight, is so we have to get that in order to get marriage, in order to understand it, you have to understand this. You have to understand God's marriage to a whore. And we get that as we begin to look at Hosea. And in the life of Hosea, what Hosea was is he's a prophet. And prophets were a very specific office in the life of Israel, in the life of God's people. When God's people would go astray, God would send a prophet. And the prophet was his mouthpiece to his people. In other words, prophets were not preachers. They didn't get up and read the word of God and say... This is what it means. They got up and they spoke the word of God. God gave them their very word. And at certain point in times, instead of speaking, God would say, go and act this way. Go and be my mouthpiece to my people to call them back to me by acting this way. And so when God calls Hosea, in verse 2, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom.'" For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And actually, it's the land whores great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. The word whore shows up four times in that one verse. And so what we have to first understand is we have to look at Hosea's marriage to the woman Gomer. Because what God is saying is, You need to begin to understand their marriage in order to understand me. And so God comes again to his prophet. It says, Hosea, you have this very special office. There's only one to y'all that comes on in a couple of hundred years. You're a servant of the Lord, one of the most unique offices. Um, you're, we're, they're obviously on very good terms. God speaks through them and He says, I got somebody I want to set you up with. It's this woman, Gomer, and she's a whore. And she has a wife from whoredom. And we told that she is the daughter of Diblaim. Diblaim, is her father's name, that means crushed raisin cakes. Raisin cakes were some of the food... I realize it sounds silly. Raisin cakes were some of the food they used in temple orgies for pagan gods. So she was a whore, and it appears to be that she was involved with sexual temple orgies worshiping other gods. See, this isn't someone that's, like, made a mistake, that's had an infidelity here or there. This is someone who habitually and enthusiastically indulges in all kinds of adultery, and all kinds of illicit sexual encounters with all kinds of people for both money and also just for sexual religious cults. And this is the woman that God calls His servant to marry. A friend of mine, Jean LaRue, who helped me understand this text on my way, says she's not the one that anyone looks to for a long-term relationship. She's the one that everybody looks to for a short-term relationship. She's a woman who will sleep with anyone for anything. She's easy, She's desperate. She's a whore. And this is the woman that God said, Hosea, I need you to marry this girl and love on this whore. And this is the life that Gomer lives out before him because God didn't say, Hosea, I need you to marry Gomer because once the moment you marry her, you're going to clean up her life. Because we see the story of Gomer unfold before us in the following pages in chapters 1 and chapter 2. And this is what she does. She, they get married, and then she chases after other lovers. She has two children. She has one children, and they call his name Jezreel. As far as we can tell, that was Hosea's child. And then she has two more children. A daughter, and God says, call her name No Mercy. Because she's not Hosea's child. And then another son, God said, call his name Not My People. Because he's not Hosea's people. And then we find out in verses 5 and verses 7, their mother plays the horse she conceived them as she acted... Shamefully, She said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil and my drink. Verse 7, She shall pursue other lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. These are the actions of Gomer after the wedding. This is the woman Hosea has called to marry. The first thing she does, she neglects her husband and she chases after other lovers. And then when you chase after other lovers as a prostitute, you find that your lovers demand your body. They demand everything from them. And she finds herself giving her body and her time and herself to her lovers. And it's under the auspices of this wealth and admiration in return. I'll, she said, I'll go after my lovers who give me bread and water and wool, flax, oil, and my drink. In verse 7 again, but she'll not overtake them and she'll seek them and she will not find them. So she goes after them and she gives herself to these lovers, hoping for these promises of pay and she doesn't receive them. Another way in Ezekiel, which also addresses this theme, talks about this. In Ezekiel sixteen twenty five, he says, "This is what he says about Israel. This is what God says about Israel. These are the words of Scripture." At the head of every street, you build your lofty place and make your beauty an abomination, spreading your legs to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. That's the life of the whore. That's the life of Gomer. She leaves her husband chases after lovers. She gives herself over to them. And then lastly, her lovers give her nothing in return. They end up, in fact, fact actually enslaving her. In verses, uh, again, 2-5, she goes for the bread, the water, the wool, the flax, oil, drink. In verse 7, we find out she doesn't get any of it. And in fact, in verse 8, God tells us, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. This is the testimony that it's God that gives us the good gifts. That it was Hosea that gave Gomer the good gifts, and yet she received them like gifts from her other lovers, which she had pursued. Because in fact, they actually gave her nothing in return. Again, the way Ezekiel 16 describes it, is this, verses 30 through 34. How lovesick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, a proud prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street, making your lofty place in every square, yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you are different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment. Well, no payment was given to you, therefore you are different. You see, the whoredom guy's is talking about here is a unique kind. It's the kind where people just give their lives away, where Gomer gives her heart away with no... Return payment expected. And this is the woman that God calls his servant to marry. Okay, we have to... If, it's, if you're not already grappling with that, that means God couldn't get a church, a job in the church today. If I dole out that kind of pastoral wisdom to any of y'all, I lose my job tomorrow. God actually can't be employed in the church today giving out that kind of advice. I mean, that's what's going on. this prophet... And really, in a lot of ways, the the spiritual leader of God's people, his mouthpiece, and the Lord is saying, go marry a whore. And after you marry her, she's going to whore herself out. And she's going to have children of whoredom. And the reason God calls him to is because he's saying, that's just like my bride. Um, several years ago, I had a good friend of mine who I wanted to ask out a certain girl. He has been um, interacting with this girl some, and I was telling him, you really, you know... You really need to ask her how to think y'all would really get along. And we talked about it, and you might have been set up on blind dates before or anything, but when people are telling you about somebody, like, you should really go out with this person, you should really ask out this person, the things you don't want to hear are like, they have a great personality, or, you know, you should really meet their family, they have a great family. Yeah. And there are a lot of good things that we can say, and then there are some things that we know are ways that we can sneak in less flattering things. But the one thing you can sell people with, and the one thing that I sold Mike with to ask out Sarah, of whom they're now married, and, um, is I said, "If you don't ask her out, I will, because she's the kind of girl that I would want to date." And that's what God's doing here with Hosea. He's saying, "You need to marry this woman so that you can understand whom I've married. You need to understand this woman you need to marry this woman so you can understand who I've married so that you can see the kind of wife." and experience the kind of wife that I have. He's saying, I've called him to marry her so that we can understand his marriage to us. Because the whoredom of God's people is just like the whoredom of Gomer. We neglect our husband. We read in Genesis 1 and 2. We are made in his image. and We are his sons and daughters, called to be kings of creation, and him our high king. But we've neglected our husband. We've neglected our God, and we've chased after other lovers. In Hosea 11, 1 and 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son, delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Verse 11, 7. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. Just like Gomer, we chase after other lovers and neglect our husbands. See, idolatry is what he's talking about here. Because in the life of Israel, what he's doing with Hosea is he's going to deal with Israel and the fact that they've bound themselves to pagan religions, that they've taken biblical religion and changed it to worship different gods. They've bound themselves in alliances with other peoples who worship other gods. And what he's talking about is he's talking about idolatry. He's talking about them giving their lives over and binding themselves to everything but him because His people chase after other lovers. And what the other lovers do is they demand our souls. The idols that we chase over demand our souls. They demand blood. They demand life. Hosea 9.10 Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers. He's glorying over Israel. But they came to Baal Peor, and they consecrated themselves to the thing of shame, and became tes- detestable like the thing they loved. Again in Ezekiel 16, verse 20. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and barren, wallowing in your blood. What these verses all attest to is the fact that whatever you love demands your life. You consecrate yourself to. Whatever God's people love demands our life. And we just like Gomer gives her body to her lovers, we give our body, we give our life, we give everything we have, all of our resources, to everything but God. And lastly, our idols provide nothing in return. Hosea 10, verses... 13 through 15 you have ploughed iniquity you have reaped injustice you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your lawyers of your warriors therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth-arbel on the day of battle mothers were dashed in pieces with their children thus it shall be done to you O Bethel because of your great evil at the dawn at, the dawn, at dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. See, so we read the Old Testament, we read about God's judgment on Israel, and we think about how unfair he is. But what God is doing is he's giving people over to what they worship. Because when we pursue other idols, when we bind our lives and find ourselves in these other things, one of the worst things that can happen to us is God say, here, you can have it. In fact, it's a form of punishment in Romans 1 and 2. He gives people over to their lust and to their lovers. And what we find is that when we bind our lives and we build ourselves up and say, what I am about is this thing, this hope, this image, whatever it is, you're perfecting yourself. What does it ultimately promise you? It promises you everything that the Old Testament promises for all those people we are uncomfortable with God judging. The same thing, death. It has no solution for death. And so we whore after these things, whatever it may be, and they have no payment in return, just like Gomer received nothing in return. You see sin is really the addiction to things that never even begin to give us what we the very things that we actually sought them for. Sin is just us grasping after something and it leads us on, and it taunts us, and we run after it. and devote our lives to it, and it never gives. And that's the life of Gomer. And that's the life of God's people. We've whored ourselves to all manner of idols, and we have little to no reservation about it. And when our idols fail us, we go to God, and we ask Him to be our Baal. In verse 2, 16, part of the restoration, God says... Um, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer my Baal. One of the things we do with our idolatry is we dress it up in religious language. And we use the Christian God to serve our idols. Whoring is this. It's giving yourself. It's binding yourself. It's knitting your heart and your hopes and your time and energy to someone or to some thing or to some image, whatever it is, some future picture of yourself. And in that hope, you're binding yourself to it, saying, I just want this thing to make this life a little bit less frustrating, to give it a little bit more meaning, to bring me happiness, joy, whatever it is you seek. And everybody does it. And the reason that we all do it, the reason we're all whoring after these things, is because what we saw last two weeks is we are made for a covenantal relationship with the Lord and Creator. And when we rebelled against him, all of a sudden our heart and our lives were untethered from that relationship that grounded us and gave our lives meaning. And so now what what we do is our hearts just lash and flail around, seeking for something to grasp hold of. And one of the things that Israel is most often guilty of is making the appearance of biblical religion into one of those false lovers. Even in Hosea, we find that they've mixed the trappings, the outside things of religion They've mixed those things with just pure love for self. And God sees through it. He sees the idolatry at our hearts that what they love is themselves and not Jesus, only through acting and only that they do it through acting outwardly like a very religious person. Hosea six six says, God's saying, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's talking about biblically instituted religious procedures. And he's saying, you don't get it. I want your love, not your sacrifice. All those sacrifices I gave you were about you teaching this. All those sacrifices I gave you were about me teaching you this. I want you. doing, Going through these ceremonies doesn't get you any closer to me. We can make anything into a lover. We can make anything into something that we love besides Jesus and it might even be true that we no longer give ourselves to anything and hope of anything in return. We give ourselves over just to the daily business of life, and we might not even expect anything anymore. Rather, we just kind of mindlessly engage with the things before us, and we've slowly been sedated and are just doing stuff with no introspection and no larger view to larger reality. As we encounter the story of Hosea, we have to recognize who we are in this story, and it's not a flattering picture. And we have to ask the question, how does God deal with whores like us? And in answering that question, before we answer it, I want to point this out. God's not a conservative or a liberal. I'm not talking about the election, but you can think about those terms in any way you want to. God's approach to dealing with a whore is not a conservative approach. The conservative approach that probably most of us in this room, especially the libertarian contingency here like, um, is this. People need to be held accountable for what they do. They make certain decisions. They need to reap the consequences. People will never become mature. People will never grow into adulthood. They'll never be responsible people unless they pay the consequences for the decisions they make, right? I mean, this is logical. We gotta. People got to... React, people got to deal with the things they bring upon themselves. Otherwise, they can never come into any sort of responsible maturity. That's the conservative approach to dealing with issues, right? The conservative approach to dealing with the whore is like, listen, I'm sorry things went that way for you, but you got to deal with reality and the choices you've made. And you'll never enter into maturity until you deal with that, until you have the consequences come upon them. But God's approach is not the conservative approach, but His approach is not the liberal approach. Because the liberal approach is, man, you really had a hard home life. I don't know what happened. Maybe you're a crack baby. I don't know what it is. I'm so sorry. I can't presume to understand how you are. I'm never going to judge you. It's okay. I can't blame you for what happened. I, I, I totally understand. The liberal approach is, let's not blame anybody. And that's not God's approach either. And you see, in our hearts, we really have a complex system. We're all actually secretly conservative and liberals when we begin to deal with ourselves, because either the conservative side kicks in and we try to pay God back for our sins. You're right. I did wrong. I'm so sorry. I'm caught in this. And now I'm going to do what it takes to get back in favor with you. I'm going to pay the consequences and I'm going to give you my guilt. I'm so sorry. I feel so bad. I'm going to beat myself up about it. I'm going to give you my devotion. I just need to get back in the word and so you'll love me more and we'll be restored, right? So we deal with our sin that way, and sometimes we deal with it, we're actually all secretly liberals too. Sometimes we just diminish our sins. It's not that big a deal. You know, there's bigger stuff out there than what's going on in my life. I don't need to be, you know, there should be suffering or consequences for this. We numb ourselves to our sin. We culturally justify them. You know, if you're going to say this is wrong, then what about all these other things? They're wrong too. And God doesn't take the conservative or the liberal approach to dealing with a whore. We're dealing with our sin. He doesn't make her pay. And He doesn't say, you're not responsible. God takes a third path that is confounding and beautiful. The way God deals with a whore is He marries her. The way God deals with whoredom is He marries her. Are you all comfortable with that idea? I'm not. And when we read that in Scripture, it's unsettling. And it's unsettling for two reasons. First, because... God doesn't marry a whore, right? This is God, the high God, the holy God, the righteous God that demands perfection and commitment and obedience and righteousness. The idea that he marries a whore, and even this kind, which seems to be the lowest kind, is offensive to us. Yes, yes, does that offend anybody besides me? Okay. The second reason it offends us is because we actually don't consider ourselves whores. In fact, we're not really willing to kind of enter into using that language to describe ourselves. Because whores are other people, the other people with the larger problems that have made the bigger mistakes, right? They're the people that need more grace than us. And these two instincts really reveal two things, and it's that that fundamentally, we actually still believe that we're good, and that our version of whoring is for the most part innocent. Yeah, we're a little guilty, but there's worse. And second, we fundamentally still don't understand grace. So how does God deal with a whore? He marries her. What does that look like? First, verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 8. First, he just gets torn up over it. He says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. That word for recoil there, It's a very powerful word. He's basically saying, my heart just feels like... The word actually is used for the destruction of cities in the Old Testament. He's saying, my heart is falling apart over you. When God deals with his whore, his whoring wife, his heart breaks. And he's torn up over. And this is why God is not a liberal. Because liberals don't judge anybody. Liberals don't say... Liberals say... What's right for you is right for you. I'm not going to hold you responsible for that. And that's not love. That's just fear. That's the fear that if I begin to deal with other people's stuff, they might come in and deal with mine. Love is God here weeping over everything that we've done wrong, over all the ways we've bound ourselves to everything but Him. Love is hating the destructive tendencies in the heart of the one that you long to be beautiful Love is not not dealing with other people's messiness. God's love is very much expressed in His anger at the things that destroy His bride, even the things that she participates in. But His solution is not to destroy her. His solution is to pursue her. He's ripped up, He's torn up over her, and then He pursues her. In verse uh, chapter 2, verse 10, He says, Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of My hand. All throughout Hosea, what we find is that when God comes back to his bride and pursues her, he performs the gracious act of exposing her. The painful, the horrible, the vulnerable act of exposing her. And he says, this is who you are with your whoredom. And he doesn't allow us to hide under that anymore. And it is painful, when we encounter scripture and it's painful when we encounter the Holy Spirit and the people of God because it opens us up and God exposes the lewdness of what we've chosen and he shows us the emptiness of our hearts and the desperation we live in even though we've done such a good job of creating a facade to live behind and convinced everybody that for the most part we're okay. When God pursues us he first exposes us. But not only that in verse uh, chapter 14 or verse 2 he says therefore behold I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I'll give her vineyards and make the valley of Acor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. God's saying, and I will allure her. And he woos us with his love and with the pursuit of an unrelenting lover. He goes after the one who chases after others, and he is faithful to one who's not faithful. He's torn up over her, and he pursues her, and then he purchases her. Because Gomer's whoredom led her into slavery. She sold herself to the men whom she loved on. And and that's why God has to go to Hosea and say to him, in chapter 3, verse 1, "'Go again and love a woman,' this is Gomer, "'who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, "'even as the Lord loves the children of Israel.'" that they turned to other gods and love raising cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Hosea, imagine the scenario in the town center. Everyone knows who your bride is, and she's sitting on the auction block, having given her body over to all the men in town, and you have to bid against them for your wife. It's the picture set before us. Hosea 14, 4 through 8. And I will heal their apostasy, and I will love them freely. My anger has turned from them. I will be like dew to Israel, and he shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow, and they shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. He goes and purchases his lover, and then he makes her beautiful. It makes her flourish. It makes her everything she was supposed to be. Do you see what the gospel is? God is talking to us about how he relates to us. The nature of the gospel, the love God has for his people. This is the heart of the gospel right here. This is it. God marries a whore. God covenantally binds Himself to a whore and He mourns her and He chases after her and He woos her and allures her and He restores her. And He does it over and over again to His whoring wife. And it's that covenant love, that covenant love, that, find, that begins to draw our hearts out to Him. And we begin to change. You see, we have this backward notion of the Gospel that what we're supposed to do is do some stuff to get God's attention and to get Him to be happy with us, and that is nothing further from the truth. And this book and all of Scripture testifies that we're whores, and God runs after us. And He doesn't just abide us; and He doesn't bring us into the house under the pretenses of um, "you are somehow lesser, somehow you're nothing." He runs after us, and He marries us, and He makes us the beautiful bride we were always supposed to be. And it cost Him deeply and dearly to purchase us back. It cost the blood of His perfect Son. That was what was required to make His bride beautiful again. The Gospel is this. The Gospel is God's marriage to us. And I think when a lot of us got into Christianity, this is a thought Les Newsome helped me with, we probably got into it under false pretenses. We probably got into it uh, as Christianity is a manner in which we can feel less guilty about the stuff in our life. Right? There's this God. I want Him to come in when I feel guilty. Help me deal with that, forgive it, and then we're going to go about the business of life. Right? that's a good thing. We want that. Or we might have gotten into Christianity because we wanted a method for living morally. Right? So we got into this Christianity thing because I need to live the right kind of life, and it seems like this is it. Or we got into Christianity because it's an emotional high, you know, it provides some kind of feeling during the week that we like, and that gives us something to go on. And we get under, if that's the reason we got into Christianity, we really got in, into it under false pretenses because Christianity is this Christianity is the Lord and Creator, the one in, in whose image we are made, binding Himself to us in marriage and committing Himself to making us beautiful, to bringing us to holy maturity, to fighting for us, even if He has to fight against us, for us. It's Him longing for our restoration. Jesus has united Himself to us. And he's not letting go. And if you got into Christianity under those other pretenses, then the invasive, comprehensive, soul-wrenching love with which he has committed to us is going to come as a shock. Because his involvement in your life is not about making you feel good about yourself and not feel bad about the bad things you've done. It's not about him preparing us for some ethereal, abstract place where we go when we're no longer embodied and we... You know, wear white gowns and play harps. He is remaking us into the beautiful bride that he has already declared us to be. And he's remaking us into that bride so that at the end, when all is said and done, everything is over again, you and I are going to gather around a table, and there's going to be amazing food. And according to Scripture, there's going to be well-aged wine. Y'all have, some of y'all have to deal with that then because you're not dealing with it now. Um... And we're going to have a feast together, and it's going to be amazing. And that's the moment we're living toward. And that feast is a marriage feast. And it's a marriage feast honoring the love Jesus has for his bride, which is us. That's the moment we're preparing for. We're preparing for the beauty that Jesus is making in our lives so we can go to the feast beautiful together. And we'll delight in him, and he'll delight in us, and God will laugh over us and enjoy us, and we'll enjoy him. Believing and living toward that reality will be the only thing that allows you to enter into marriage here and now with any kind of hope. <clears throat> one of the, uh, some of the application points as we get near the end. Um, one of the things this means, first of all, is that there's no such thing as dating God. You can't present to Him a little bit of you in these certain areas that you want Him to deal with. Because what God is in the business of doing is making all of you holy, which means that He goes into all of your life. And He exposes all of our liveness. And He begins to work His beautiful work of making us beautiful again. So you can't date Him. You can't just treat Him like some, a part of your schedule during the week. He is interested in all of you, which means He's going to deal with all of you. And if you try to date Him, my guess is one of two things is going to happen. First of all, you'll find that you actually encountered the real God of Scripture. And that out of love and devotion, He's going to get messy in your life with His people and with His Word and His pursuit to love and restore you. And what you're going to feel like is you're going to feel like this. I don't want this, but I want this. I don't want this, but I want this. And if that's not what happens as you try to date God, the other thing that's going to happen is you find out you never met Him. Is that you're going to have responsibilities in life that come up and slowly this thing called religion is going to seep out of your schedule because it's inconvenient. And it will reveal that you never knew God, that what you thought you encountered was nothing. The first application is there's no such thing as dating God. The second thing, and this is the heart of the rest of the semester, is God's love for His bride is both the foundation and the model for the marriage. God's love for His bride is both the foundation and the model for marriage because it's the foundation in this sense. Your spouse is in salvation. And a lot of us believe that. Your marriage is not salvation. A lot of us believe that, and you'll crush your spouse underneath that notion. But rooted in Jesus, because Jesus is the one to whom we're intended to be covenantally, eternally bound, we have the capacity to begin to love people well. And we have the capacity to enter into a marriage healthy. Because we draw our life and we draw our meaning and our forgiveness from the Lord Jesus. And not from that marriage. And so you can enter into that marriage and forgive and love one another well, because you're not asking that marriage to be God. You see, the marriage gospel is this. The marriage gospel is this. It's covenant love. And we use that term covenant a lot this semester. And we use that term covenant to mean the word love because here's what love is not. Love is not feelings. Y'all are dating a lot of people right now. Y'all have strong feelings of affection toward one another. That's good. I'm glad you have that. It's great. It attracts you towards one another. And you feel really... Affectionate for the other person. And I know what you do because I did it and I'm not even necessarily saying it's wrong. You're telling each other, I love you, I love you so much, I love you deeply, right? And you say that because you feel strong affection toward one another. I'm not denying that. Here's what I am saying. That's not love. It's a legitimate feeling of affection. It's not love and it provides no foundation for marriage whatsoever because what happens is you don't always feel that way. And if love is feeling, what you're doing is you're preparing preparing yourself for a life of divorce. In a lot of ways, that comes out in our dating relationships in the way we serially fall in love with people and break up over and over again because we think, oh, well, I've just fallen out of love because I don't have these feelings of affection anymore. And so we really kind of practice divorce in our dating life. I'm not saying you have to only date one person. We're going to talk more about dating stuff. But what I am saying is love is not what you feel. Love is not common interest. When Elizabeth and I first started dating, she loved to throw the football, and I loved to listen to Alison Krauss. After about two months after we started dating, she didn't throw the football, and I haven't listened to Alison Krauss. (laughs) Can't build your marriage on common interests. But it works to trick each other into dating each other. Okay. I was going to qualify that, but I'll decide not to. Love is not sexual drive. When you share those I love you moments you're being sensual in whatever way it is, from whatever end of the spectrum to whatever end of the spectrum, and you feel that power of attraction, that's not love. That doesn't sustain a marriage. And there's nothing about this passage in Hosea that shows us that feelings are love, that common interests are love, or that sexual drive is love, because what love is, is covenant. And the reason, the picture, the most clearest expression of God's love for His people, in some ways, is Jesus sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane and saying, realizing what's happening the next day as he goes to the cross, and he's sitting there, and he's sweating blood according to the Gospels, and he's saying, Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. If loving this whoring bride, whom I love dearly, means this, I don't want to do this. This is Jesus' prayer. Lord, I don't want to do this. Not my will, but your will be done. And so he proceeds to do what he doesn't want to do for his bride, and that's what love is. And only covenant gives us the capacity to do that. Only an unending commitment to the holiness and the beauty to a person who is unlovable gives us a capacity to love in just a tiny, tiny kind of way that Jesus loved us. Love is covenant. Jesus' love for his bride has to be the root, the saving relationship that you find your life in. Otherwise, you're going to destroy each other in your earthly marriages, and I know that some of you have already seen that to be true in your parents' lives because they wanted their marriage to be everything and they've crushed each other under it and they hate each other. That covenant love has to be the foundation that our life is rooted in in order to love someone else well, but it also is the model for our marriage. Jesus' love for his bride is the model for our marriage rooted in him. And loving your earthly bride or groom, it looks like this. You die for him. You die for them when it's easy, when they're wonderful and they're beautiful and they're capable and they're selfless. But that's the easy part. Because the second part is you die for them when they don't deserve it. And you forgive them over and over again. And it's only when your identity is rooted in the lover of your soul, who is Jesus, who died for his whoring bride, that you'll have the capacity to love in that manner. To close, um, the most powerful moment in my marriage, don't worry, this isn't weird, is the second night of our honeymoon. Now you know I said it's not weird. Um, in the middle of that night, Elizabeth and I had a late night conversation. Um, and through that conversation, we began to deal with some stuff in each other's lives that we had never told anybody about. And in that conversation, I told Elizabeth about some of the things that had gone on in relationships that I had had beforehand. Grow some discretions. I'm ashamed of, and you're allowed to think whatever you want about them. I'm not going to tell you the details, but I'll allow you to think whatever you want. There are things that I never wanted to bring in my marriage, and there are things I'm ashamed of. And it hurt Elizabeth. It really did. It hurt her. And through her eyes, tears streaming down her face, she said this. She said, I forgive you, and I will always love you. And I will always forgive you. And that moment provided more strength for the rest of our marriage than anything else we've done together. And it provided healing. It was a balm for my soul to have someone love me when they knew that about me. And the reason Elizabeth can love me like that is because she knows the greater love she has of Jesus. She knows that her marriage to me is not her salvation, and it doesn't make everything right again. And it's not everything she dreamed of more. The twins, we love them. it not have a tough day today. Her marriage is not everything she dreamed of and more. But her marriage to the bridegroom Jesus is. And He does do all of these things. He makes everything right again. And He is her salvation. And it gives her the capacity to love somebody like me in those kind of ways. You cannot enter into marriage with any confidence without Jesus' covenantal love for you being both the foundation and the model for marriage. You see, the cry of the afflicted soul, of the Christian soul, is this. It's not, it's not, Lord, I'll do better. It's not, Lord, just let me have this one thing. Lord, just give this to me. It's not, Lord, I promise. It's not, Lord, look what I've tried so hard to do. The cry of the afflicted soul, the cry of the Christian is, Lord, can you love a whore like me? And he can